This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most. Thank you to everyone around the world who tunes in and who shares their stories with me. And in a way, the audience appreciate you and the guest suggestions, the guests themselves, the Patreons who support the show and everyone else who supports it in their own way. Thank you. Thank you. Have a very, very interesting guest today. He's written a book called Becoming a Changemaker. He also is an educator and a teacher. It's a wonderful honor to welcome to the family for the first time, Alex Budak. Thanks for coming on, Alex. Oh, Paul, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I don't know why, but I'm, I haven't asked this question in probably months, but for some reason, I want to ask you, because you were teaching, you had people, you were a people connector. How did you deal with COVID over two years? And now we're still in, we're in our third year with it. How did it affect you personally? And I'm sure it affected the way you move through the world and the way you interact. Well, yeah, on a personal and a professional level. So on the personal level, uh, we found out that my wife, Rebecca, was expecting our first. We found out about three days after everything went into lockdown. So that meant that we were going from, I mean, the biggest news of our life, and then also trying to figure out how to navigate a pregnancy in the middle of COVID when everything was scary. And I was literally trying to be the good future dad. And I was, you know, wiping down every piece, every grocery that came into the, the house, whatever it took. Um, so that was quite a way to, to kind of start the journey to becoming a family of three. Um, on the professional side, um, it shifted so much of what I do. There's, as an educator, so I, I of course, teach and um I'm so used to the magic of the classroom. And I remember that I had less than 24 hours from when the school shut down and say, we're going online in my next lecture. So it was on a Monday, we found out it was closing Tuesday morning, I was teaching. So less than 24 hours to start teaching and was thrown right into it. Um, but I have to say, I got pretty comfortable with teaching online. It's not the same as the magic of being in a classroom. Uh, but I really tried to approach it with like, what's the what does it make possible teaching online versus teaching um, in a classroom? And there actually were some some positives I tried to lean into as I taught. I want to shift because you found out you were going to be a dad. Has anything ever changed or transformed your thinking as much as that uh, news and the fact of having a child? Not even close. No, that's that's the biggest change. Literally, I'm a guy that teaches change, and there's nothing that's changing more than that. How did it shift you in terms of your relationship? both to him or her, but also in terms of the future. Now you literally had a visceral, linear investment in what was to come. Yeah, I've always been a big believer in my teaching and my writing about how can we leave the future better uh, than we found it. And so that's been an intellectual exercise for me for such a long time. But it's a very different thing when you go, okay, well, I've got this son who's going to inherit the world, quite literally, that we leave him. Uh, and it puts all the much more pressure on what is it you do and pressure, not in a bad way, pressure in like an opportunity sense to say like everything I do has so much more meaning because I just love him so much and want to do whatever I can. And it gives that much more meaning to say, you know, if I believe the world needs more change makers, I believe it for myself, but I also believe it for him and for his world. Did it make you more, I don't want to say worried, but something like that where all, you know, you start to think of things where 
maybe you were less afraid of your own demise than you were for this little being that's so dependent on you that all of a sudden now you're like looking out for, you know, like wiping everything down. Suddenly you're the uh, pinnacle of cleanliness because you love this little being. Well, it's a good thing that I did my um, skydiving on a Groupon on a budget uh, before he was born, which by the way, a lesson to all of your listeners, never do that. Um, <laughs> got that out of the way early on. Um, but no, I'm not sure it makes me more anxious, perhaps just more aware, uh, more aware of making sure that I'm, I'm there for him in, in every sense, physical, emotional, and beyond. And why did you get into teaching? What do you love about teaching? I didn't expect to get into teaching, uh, but as I look back on my whole career, it's kind of the red thread that connects it all. So I've been a social entrepreneur, but as I look back, even when I was a social entrepreneur, a lot of what I was doing was teaching people. I was teaching people about how to create an impact and how to lead change. And even though that was never my title until I became a professor, um, teaching has always been sort of at the core of, of what I do. But, you know, it doesn't always make sense until you look at the dots backwards and you realize, ah, oh, okay, like, I really am a teacher. I really am an educator. And I think once I more formally put on that role, put on that hat, uh, it felt like the most natural fit that I had ever had in a professional sense, because it's just what I'm, I'm meant to be doing. I firmly believe that. And is it something about serving that resonates it and sharing because I love to, I love to share. I never was a teacher. My mom was a teacher. I love teachers, and to me, I just hold them in a very high accord because most of them don't get paid very much, and yet they give so so of themselves. Yeah, I think it's the privilege you have as, as a teacher to help people find the potential in themselves. Um, I was lucky to have a couple of amazing teachers growing up, but whenever I walk into the classroom, I say, "What a privilege I have to get to." like see the potential in these students and to do what I can to help activate that. You know, the, the moment I live for in my class that I teach is that moment where a student for the very first time realizes that they can be a change maker, that they can lead positive change. And sometimes that light bulb happens for them like in the first 20 minutes that's happened. And sometimes it doesn't take, it takes until maybe week 10, week 11, and that's fine. But I can literally see that moment for them where they realize they've just made an identity shift, a cognitive shift. They realize like, oh, I'm changed. and I mean, gosh, what, what a privilege to get to be part of that journey with, with these people. Um, it, it's the best. And when do you feel you became a change maker and how and define it for us, too? So the audience will put their arms around that. Yeah, the way I define it is radically inclusive. So I say a change maker simply is someone who leads positive change from where they are. I think we have so many identities that are exclusive. So either you're an artist or you're not an engineer or you're not a leader or, or not. Um, change makers and identity, you can layer onto your other identities. And so I'm not prescriptive other than to say, it's about leading change from where you are. So someone who's an intern or an entry level employee has just as much claim to the title as someone who's a CEO or a leader in the social justice world. All of us can be change makers. Now, as for myself, I guess it was slightly gradual as I was growing up. Um, I grew up in Silicon Valley Bay area. So I've always been sort of surrounded by entrepreneurship, but the kind of classic model of entrepreneurship really never quite resonated with me. I've always been entrepreneurial. I love creating new things, creating new campus groups, student groups, and so on, but never just for the sense of like, hey, I want to create this company and then sell it. Um, so for me, it wasn't until I spent some time living and working in India that I first got introduced to the concept of social entrepreneurship. Social entrepreneurship, of course, where you combine sort of the tools of entrepreneurship, but with a lens towards impact. And while I was there, I had this sort of 
light bulb moment that there's change makers quite literally all around the world, people who want to create change in their local community, but just too many barriers getting in the way. Um, that was sort of the light bulb moment for me where I felt like I had this new realization. I felt like I had an opportunity that um, one, I could become a change maker and also a chance for me to perhaps serve other change makers around the world. What are the obstacles that come when we want to make change? Institutional, I would think limiting beliefs, collective limiting beliefs. Uh, we've never done it that way before, stuff like that. A whole number of them. So I started off with the ones that are a little bit easier to grasp. So I started off recognizing that financial capital is something that holds back a lot of change makers. My co-founder and I were a big believer that the way we fund social enterprises is broken, that it tends to be someone sitting in a room all by themselves, looking at grants and going, no, 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 no. Yes, no, no, no. Um, but ultimately, who knows better what a community needs than the community itself? So we try to change that model of fundraising to be community driven and also to be risk seeking instead of risk avoidant to say like, hey, sometimes you just need $100, $200 US dollars to just get started with an idea and to try to believe in people, give people more chances rather than take away chances. So we started off in a very kind of technical sense of financial capital. But as you suggest, as we got more and more into change making, oftentimes a lot of what holds us back are more of the internal uh, belief systems, internal things. And so what I found in my teaching and writing about in the book is that there's sort of three levels of change making, three things that we need to lead positive change. And so the first is our mindset. That's the way of seeing the world and our role inside of it. Um, how can we lead and shape change from where we are? How do we make sense of the world around us? How do we spot opportunities where others might only see challenges? Uh, part of that is also giving us ourselves the self-permission to say like, hey, there's an issue, there's a problem, and I can give myself permission to step up and do something about it rather than just letting it go by. I call it, call it learned hopefulness, this belief that um, tomorrow can be better than today and I can play a role in making it so. From there, it's about change maker leadership. So sometimes you've got the sort of mindset, but you lack the leadership skills to activate others. So not knowing how to lead with a vision, maybe not knowing how to influence people, even if you don't have authority. Um, and to be fair, a lot of the leadership techniques we learn in business schools, I think, are old, dated, outdated, broken models. And so I think there's a chance to relearn what leadership actually looks like to lead change. And then the third thing is the fear of getting started. I think all change makers, we all need that little boost of courage. Um, getting started, those crucial first steps of going from idea into action. How many of us have ideas we kind of hold on to, we keep in our pocket? Um, but the world needs those ideas. And so um, supporting change makers to take those uh, very consequential but challenging first steps. Alex, is this inner sense of optimism essential for inspired actions? Finding a sense of hope, a sense of belief, I think is essential. Now, whether or not it's, you call it optimism or something else, I'm flexible on. Um, I love the quote from singer-songwriter Joan Baez. She says, action is the antidote to despair. So in saying this, I don't wanna sound like toxic positivity coming off like, you have to just pretend everything's fine because the reality is our world, our companies, our communities, we're facing big substantive, big challenges. Um, but I love what Joan Baez says is that when we feel despair, um, can we take some action in spite of that? That can be the call to action. And often that's the antidote that we need. So whether or not you're naturally an optimist or a hopeful person, um, having a bias towards action, I think, helps. You know, that said, I do think there's this driving belief. Um, and I love the words of the poet Amanda Gorman. Um, she says, for there's always light, if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. 
I think that conceptualizes what it means to be a change maker in a beautiful way, that there's always another way, but we have to be able to have the vision. We have to be able to see it, but also you have to have that courage to take some action on it, to be the change. Where does curiosity fit into all of it? Hugely underpinning. So that, that's an aspect of what I call the change maker mindset. Uh, I love the work of Ian Leslie. He says, uh, curiosity is like a muscle. Um, it's something you have to exercise. I think we tend to think I'm either a curious person or I'm not. But I really like thinking of it as something that we work out and that we need to regularly tap into our curiosity. Um, change makers, I think, are good at practicing that. But if you feel like you're maybe not tapping into it quite as much, I think thinking of it as a muscle, something you work out can be really empowering. I love the idea, for instance, of practice seeing the world like a three-year-old. Uh, my little guy's 20 months old right now, so I've got a little time before he's three. But three-year-olds, from what I understand, are great at asking why. They're great at being curious about the world. And uh, I think we would all do a little bit, uh, do well to have a little bit of that um, world curiosity that a three-year-old has as we uh, go about our daily life. For me, curiosity is like an addiction. The more I feed it, the greater it gets. I, And this show is like the perfect antidote for it. I get to come and connect with all these people like you around the world and learn and learn and ask questions. I always feel like questions just, they're like the tonic for me. If I don't understand, I can ask and and learn and more often than not be completely surprised in a good way and expand it and see things I didn't see before the questions. That's exactly right. That's one thing that I love about your interview style is that you do let curiosity lead you. Um, like we don't know where this conversation will lead us other than we're going to uh, explore what comes to mind. And I love the frightening nature of it on purpose of there's no script and we have no idea. It could technically bomb or it could be amazing, but thank God because the guests are so fantastic. The shows have been overwhelmingly great and successful. And people do like the authors, the guests, the different people love the idea of no script and not the same five or six questions they get over and over again ad nauseum where they operate on autopilot and it's hard for them. Well, I'll give you some credit here. I love the words of journalist Kate Murphy. So she says, everybody is interesting if you ask the right questions. So if someone seems dull or uninteresting, then it's on you. I really love that. So if you find that people are interesting, it's probably because you are asking the right questions. And to me, everyone is. If you kind of find the humanity or something interesting in there. I was just on a park bench about an hour and a half ago, and this older man sat down. We started talking, and he ended up sharing an antidote how he once prayed with the legendary coach John Wooden from UCLA. But the whole story was amazing. Only because we started talking and we got into this deep talk about all these things about what gives life meaning on a bench. Two guys, total strangers. I still don't know the guy's name. Well, you just activated my curiosity because I went to UCLA. I'm a diehard UCLA Bruin fan, and I've got John Wooden's pyramid of success behind me as we speak. So uh, you, you perked up my curiosity there. I love and I've been a uh, huge admirer. He had an impact on me by reading his stuff, and I knew people that knew him. So the man sat down. He had a UCLA hat on. And that's how we started talking about it. And I mentioned John Wooden and he said, oh, have I got a story for you? And that's where it went. Oh, I love it. How about empathy, Alex? Where does that fit into everything? Especially for leadership. I think to pay of great leadership, you'd have to have deep empathy. Hugely important. I think it's something that's often lacking in many of our companies and leaders today. Um, Patty Sanchez did really interesting work and she found that 50% of C-suite executives, when they're leading change, they don't take into account how people on the front lines will perceive the change. So in other words, they might be totally right in the change that they're leading when they see things from their perspective, but they haven't taken account, one and two, haven't taken into account how other people will perceive the change. I think it's absolutely crucial. 
Um, I do an exercise with students in my class, and it's one I pass along in the book as well, which is sort of an applied empathy exercise um, where I invite students to, uh, and readers in this case, to imagine a current situation they find really frustrating. So a place where, um, you know, maybe someone keeps cutting you off when you're trying to talk at work or a driver cuts you off quite literally while you're driving um, and to make some assumptions about them. Um, but then to sort of follow that and as frustrated as you want to get, try to put yourself in their shoes and try to understand what are the values that are leading where they are coming from. Now, in doing so, I'm not expecting people to have sympathy because empathy isn't the same as sympathy, but to at least understand you know, what values are driving someone else's behavior. Because we can start connecting the values level. It may open up more productive conversations. I'll give you a little hack on the uh, traffic thing. A mentor once told me, and then I adapted it. When I see when somebody cut off or rush through traffic, I either think they're trying to get to the emergency room to see someone they love before they die or or that, or they're just, they've been working hard and they can't wait to get home and see their kids. So then I have an empathetic thing, but I don't always remember it. So I'm going to have to remember, write that one down again. I love that. It's, and it's not saying it's automatic. Right? Empathy isn't like we always apply it every single time and it's always there, but having those little hooks we can, can, can come back to and assuming the best intent out of people, I think is a healthy way to move through life. What are the key characterizations, uh, key characteristics of a change maker? So we've talked about a few of them already, but yeah, I sort of break it down into the mindset, the leadership, and then the action components. So I think one thing we can talk about is the uh, the vision that a change maker has. So um, that's not to say that with vision you have to be starting a brand new organization, um, but rather you can sort of see things as they come, and um, ideas need not be. Fancy need not be huge, and you need not do it by yourself. But this ability to sort of imagine the future and invite others into it, I think that's one of the defining characteristics that a change maker has. Because after all, um, it's change making, not change thinking. And so it's being able to see a future and then work towards it. All right. I want to do an exercise because uh, I've been really doing a lot of weather watching, climate watching. I've been talking to scientists. I talked to a scientist today at NASA. Another guy in England's coming on, Bill McGuire. He wrote a book called Hot House Earth. I can't wait to have him on. It looks dire if you believe in science. How do we apply these techniques, these tools to the climate emergency that's unfolding now as we speak? As I pull my students on the first day of class, I ask them, you know, what's a change that you think is important that you want to lead? And I would say 80%, maybe even higher, say climate. That's what the change we have to be focused on. So um, we've got a lot of people in uh, that generation, among others, that are saying climate is, is where the attention needs to be. But one of the challenges that so many of my students and even executives that I work with face is that climate can feel completely overwhelming. When you think about the scale of it, it just feels like paralyzing. So, so much of the work that I do is to help change makers break change down into smaller and meaningful action steps that you yourself cannot possibly be responsible for solving all of climate together. But each of us banding together, that's how we actually get some change to happen. So I really like thinking about it, a technique which is called networked-based leadership. The idea here is that I think we tend to overglorify the individual, the lone person. Um, we sometimes call it heropreneurship, putting the entrepreneur on a pedestal. But I think we need to think more about how we collaborate together, how we play roles in a larger ecosystem. And so the idea here is to be a node, not a hub, to be part of a larger system, to see what other people are doing and to contribute to that in a way that's true to who you are. So maybe you want to go into 
um, funding new climate ventures, or maybe you want to be one that's a COO that's working to fight climate change, or maybe you want to step up and write op-ed letters. Um, all of, we need all of those. We need them to all come together. We need to be working in concert. So understanding what other people are working on and what we can learn from each other in terms of models. So maybe there's a model that's working in South Africa and you say, okay, this is interesting. Now let me think about how I can apply this to my own country. Um, we need network-based leadership. We need to not be overwhelmed by the scale of the challenge. We need to find ways to band together towards it. Are you seeing enough of that in our world now to address the level of the challenge? No, I mean, not, not at the, the world level. Um, among the people that I spend time with, absolutely. I get a lot of I have a lot of hope and a lot of faith in the people I see that are working on climate, really thoughtful people that are approaching it exactly like this. Um, but not enough yet. We need more and more people that are choosing to dedicate um, their, our most valuable resource we have is our time. But I think there's a pretty much no better way to be spending it than that. Mm, well said. How does that affect you as a father of a 20-month-old child? What kind of world is he going to have in 10 to 20 years, 30? Will he have a chance to raise his own children in a livable world? Let me think about that. I mean, it breaks my heart when I see people that are deciding not to have children because they're worried about the climate that kids will be inheriting. Um, it's heartbreaking. Um, you know, I, I certainly hope so. And if that doesn't give you some sense of urgency, I don't know what will uh, to think about. Like, you know, um, everything now has a climate lens to it, even when you didn't before. So thinking about where you want to live, um, that has a new climate lens that I think even three, four years ago, we probably weren't thinking about. I would love for someone like you, I'm putting, not putting it on you, but someone like you to organize perhaps some sort of micro, micro thing, because you teach people how to get active. And if like if we could do the thousands of points of light and get the hundred monkey theory going and everything else, feels like we need that combination of you know, millions of people just doing their bit and demanding of government and from the business world that, hey, if we don't have a livable world, nothing else matters. There'll be no market. There'll be no free market. There'll be no, it won't matter for authoritarian or democracy or anything. It'll, it'll just be bleak. No, it's exactly, exactly right. I teach at a business school, of course. And yeah, there won't be a lot of business <laughs> if you just think of the traditional business sense, if there aren't uh, people around to buy the products and services. Can we act in a beautiful way, even if we don't believe the situation will work out? Or if, I mean, specifically, even on this, if we are doomed, people ask me all the time, do you have hope? And I say, I try not to think of terms of hope or optimism. I try to stay present and then just do the best thing, the right thing I can do in that moment. Because ultimately, that's all I could do anyway. I don't know how it'll end up. I can see the trends. I know that if we don't change, we'll go radically extinct there might be some of us left but that's out of my control that's too far away so i just think what can i do today you know hour by hour to try to be in the right direction on this and part of it is the show and having climate scientists on having discussions asking everybody about it both in the micro and on the show and everything like that it's a different type of uh, approach though to not act from hope and optimism i don't have any kids i just want to do the right thing but I find it harder in a way if you disassociate from that sort of thing. You're just doing it for the uh, the virtue of it. And there may be some people that do that. But I, I like the quote from author Rebecca Solnit uh, talking about hope. She says, hope is not a lottery ticket. You can sit on the sofa and clutch feeling lucky. Hope is an axe you break down doors with in an emergency. Alex, what do you do for self-care? How do you not burn out and fry like a lot of activists do? Self-care is radically important. 
That's exactly right. Um, taking care of ourselves, self-care is so important. It's sometimes thought of as like a luxury, but it's not a luxury. It's essential. Um, and changemaker burnout is all too real among the changemakers that I support. And that's why I actually talk about starting right away in chapter two of my book, because I think that's how important it is. It's not something you write about in the last chapter. Oh, by the way, no, it's a fundamental piece of being a changemaker. Um, so for me, it's physical exercise is huge for me. Uh, it's learning, it's growing, it's going for quiet walks by myself. Um, those are the ways that I tend to renew. Um, I wish I could say I was into meditating in yoga. It's not for lack of giving it attempts. Uh, it hasn't quite stuck for me, but um, like physical, like high uh, intensity interval training seems to work well. And then, yeah, long meandering walks um, are super important for me. And do you have to force yourself to step away? Because usually people that are driven like you, it's really hard to stop. Um, <laughs> no, I, I don't find it that, that hard, actually. I think it's mostly because I've learned that lesson the hard way in my uh, social entrepreneurship days. Uh, that's where I was not taking good care of myself. And honestly, I just got totally burned out. So um, I didn't take good care of myself then, uh, but I learned the lesson the hard way now. And so it's one that I, I really uh, put um, a high import on for myself and then also teach to, to others. Have you ever contemplated where all your drive comes from? Why are you so driven? Why do you want to accomplish stuff? You're organized, you're successful, you wrote a book, you teach, you're a dad. Why are you not a laggard? <laughs> uh, um, honestly, I have never thought of that. I, I, I don't know. You, you stopped me a little bit. Um, I do go back to a quote at uh, another UCLA alumnus that I love that inspires me, Jackie Robinson. Um, he says, a life is not important except in the impact it has on other lives. And so my hope is that I'm not just driven for the sake of being driven or busy for the sake of being busy, uh, but that's all towards some end that is making a difference in, in people's lives. And I think if as long as that's the case, then, um, then how could I not be driven? Who was the big influence on you growing up? Who who seeded this drive? Who affirmed this drive? Who nurtured you? I think my parents, I think you give them a lot of uh, credit there for supporting me and for uh, teaching me values at a, at a young age. Um, so I think them and then also, like I said, being an educator now, I had a couple of teachers who really uh, saw potential in me and supported me. So parents and, and teachers, I think, are the ones that, that I give credit for that way. Will you talk to the people out there who are looking for purpose in their life? And I always say, if you want to find some meaning at least in the short term or perhaps the long term, look to serve others. Talk about that, how, why that, why that so resonates within us and why that's so important for a life like Jackie, the great Jackie Robinson said that matters. Yeah, I completely agree. As you were asking for me in that question, that's what I'm going to pop in with. And so I'm glad that you beat me to it. Um, I, I think there's a lot of pressure on people today that says like, go find your purpose as if like, all you have to do is like, go to the beach, sit by yourself for a couple hours and you'll see a sunset and then like, boom, I've got my purpose. But it's not that simple. <laughs> it's, it's not like it just comes to you. Like, I think you need to start doing things. Again, that idea from um, John Baez, action is the antidote to despair, like taking some action. And I think you'll start figuring it out as as you go, start seeing what, what resonates and what motivates you and what drives you. And that's where perhaps curiosity comes in again as well. If you go into it saying like, okay, I have six months to figure out my purpose. That's a lot of pressure and you may not find it in that way. But if instead you go in with curiosity and go, hey, I want to help some other people. Let me see the best way I can help others and what might happen as a result. I think that's where you might find your best path to purpose. Yeah. And purpose keeps evolving for me and changing. It's always about people, but the method of delivery system keeps changing. 
And I always say, go volunteer. You'll meet other great people and you'll feel good. It's selfish. I call it enlightened selfishness. You go down and you find people that uh, are not doing as well as you. I was in Nashville recently and I was part of this uh, wonderful organization was handing out food one generation away. I got to tell you, that was the best three or four hours on a Saturday I could have ever spent. The vibe, the people handing out the food, serving, were about as happy as I've ever seen people. And the people coming for the food were lifted up by that spirit. There was no shame. But I thought, God, just, and that was free. Anybody could go down there and just hand out food and say and talk to people and ask how people were. There's tons of stuff going on like that because our world is so full of need. Find some niche or even better. If you can't find it, create one. Completely agree. And you can be selfish for yourself if you if you need to be. But I'm, I'm inspired by the work of Jimmy Ozaki from Stanford. Um, he wrote in The War for Kindness. He talks about how empathy is contagious. And he's done a number of experiments, but showing that when we observe acts of empathy or acts of kindness, it makes us want to be more empathetic and kind as well. And so what a nice way to start a, a chain reaction that way. Well, I know you're a busy guy, so I'm going to let you go, but I'm going to have a, a unique closing question. I want to pretend that your son is going to be 18 or 21 and he's going to listen to this show and it's going to have a time capsule message to him. What would you say? Because there's a lot of guys out there and a lot of kids out there who listen to this show. This is, he's going to be listening to this thing. This was his dad. This is his dad. I hope he's still around. What would you say to him? It's his 18th birthday and he's thinking he wants to find his place in the world. He's graduated or perhaps he's graduated college. He's going to go out in the world. This is a chance to put something in a time capsule for him. What a powerful question. I'm going to give it a, give it a pause to think because it deserves that type of reflection. I think. Mm, take your time. I think what I tell him is, that the, the world needs him, that um, the world needs him to step up and to lead from from where he is. And um, there's all too many reasons to feel that you shouldn't have hope. Look at the state of the world today. You're inheriting a world where um, a lot of really uh, systemic issues you're inheriting are not your fault. Um, but I hope that rather than feeling anger at inheriting it, that you use that sense of justice that you've been raised with to um, apply that and to try to make the world better for other people as well. Um, because the world needs you, society needs you, communities need you, and we need you to step up. And I hope that you'll hear and you'll uh, heed that challenge. And if he followed that up and he said, Dad, what matters most? Living a life that you are proud of that isn't based on someone else's notions or ideals and one that in the words of jackie robinson um make a difference in the lives of others my son's middle name is jack uh, which is a nod to jackie robinson and so i hope that uh, he has that same uh, courage and resilience to keep fighting for justice and equality and for change You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.